Defence Dialogue, a podcast discussing contemporary challenges in the area of European security and defence. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Nicholas Novaki. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wilfried Martin Centre for European Studies uh, Defence Dialogue podcast. My name, as always, is um, Dr. Nicholas Novaki. I'm a research officer at the Martin Centre working on EU foreign security and defense policy. And today I'm very excited because for the first time in this podcast, we'll be discussing European security and defense issues with a member of the private sector, Sir Martin Donnelly from the aerospace company Boeing. And this is also, uh, I want to know the first time that we'll also be speaking uh, to a night. So I'm very, very uh, happy about that. It's a double first. Um, so Martin has a very impressive uh, resume. He's been the president of Boeing Europe and managing director of Boeing UK and Ireland since 2019. Uh, before joining Boeing, Sir Martin spent more than three decades uh, in government service in the UK and two years as a senior business advisor and lecturer. He was also a permanent secretary at the UK uh, Department for International Trade from 2016 to 2017. And before that, he spent uh, several years as a permanent secretary at the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills. And in addition to this, like he also worked as, uh, on secondment to the French uh, Ministry for Economy and Finance in Paris and the European Commission in Brussels. So he's very familiar uh, with the Brussels bubble and the topics that are discussed here. So welcome, Sir Martin, and thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Nicholas. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'm very pleased to have uh, this opportunity to discuss European security and defense issues with you, uh, especially kind of these days, because as you know, in recent years, I mean, the, the role of the industry, especially in European security and defense issues uh, and cooperation has grown quite substantially. So I, I value this opportunity to hear your thoughts uh, greatly. I, I think kind of the first topic that is probably in all of our minds um, still uh, is the ongoing uh, coronavirus pandemic. And this is obviously kind of something that has hit the global economy uh, and the aviation industry in particular, like very hard uh, over the past year. So how, in your opinion, like has it impacted Boeing and how do you see the prospects for recovery in Europe and elsewhere like this year and, 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 and later, given that the global vaccination campaign is now picking up speed? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, this has been uh, the most sudden and dramatic crisis for civil aviation that we've known for at least 70 years. And uh, it will leave the industry very different at the end of it. I think we have to recognize that. We in Boeing, having been uh, around for, for over a century, are also thinking about the medium term because we all know there will be a recovery in travel. And there's a huge demand from people for leisure, for family reasons, as well as for business, uh, to be able to uh, return safely to air travel. And as, as you say, the challenge is to make sure that process happens in a way which is safe and maintains people's confidence. So we in Boeing have been working uh, to support our own confident travel initiative as one contribution to that wider process of ensuring that people are safe in the air and that we can show, for example, that the, the air 
is changed and filtered rapidly within aircraft that uh, the whole uh, passenger area is effectively and rigorously cleaned. But of course, that's not enough. It has to be part of a wider experience through airports, uh, really from, from destination to arrival and back again. So uh, we are ready to partner with governments as they examine ideas such as vaccine passports and so on. We recognize this is a complex area and we need to get it right. So we and others in the uh, civil aviation business are clear that we've got to work together on this because the next few months are going to be challenging, but the prize of a safe return to air travel is a great one, both for people's well-being and of course, for the global economy. And we are confident that that is what will happen. So I, I think those are very welcome words to kind of all of us and uh, people uh, in, in Europe and elsewhere who are hoping to uh, uh, like plan their next holidays and, and, and also expecting air travel uh, to ret return to some semblance of normality in, in the future. But another issue that I mean has occupied people quite a bit, uh, in, at least here in the in, in Brussels uh, since uh, last year, is the transatlantic relationship and the um, presidential elections in, in in the U.S. last November. After which, it does seem that we have a new momentum for revitalizing the transatlantic relationship between uh, Europe and the United States, and and we've already kind of seen different types of proposals like coming from uh, both the European Union and, and, and the US administration. But what, what, what in your opinion, like with Europe and, and, and the United States, like concretely do to take advantage of this momentum that appears to be building at, at the moment? You're right. There is, uh, we believe, a valuable new momentum between the United States and the European Union. And it's in everyone's interests that we can move away from tariffs and restrictions, move back towards an agreed, genuinely level playing field, respecting the World Trade Organization rules and uh, what's been said about uh, what's happened in the past on both sides, and finding a robust way to go forward together so that competition, including from new entrants, takes place on a genuinely fair basis. We really uh, were very pleased to see the recent suspension of tariffs for this four month period. And we believe that that provides the space needed to put longer term agreements in place and finally put this uh, far too long running and, and damaging uh, dispute uh, uh, to bed. We in Boeing are a commercial company, of course, and, and we want nothing more than to be able to compete openly and fairly and for others uh, to do the same. And that does look as though it is now an achievable objective with a lot of uh, work on both sides. I think we can get there. And we in Boeing and I'm sure uh, others in the aerospace industry will do all that we can to facilitate that negotiation, which is, of course, uh, between governments, mm. to make sure that by the summer uh, we've all moved to a better place. Would you have uh, any ideas, perhaps, on like what those kind of longer-term arrangements that you mentioned like might uh, look like? 
Well, again, that's really for uh, government uh, negotiators mm. to decide in detail. But I think the broad principles are fairly clear. We do need to be sure that future investments in civil aviation and new aircraft uh, are not being unfairly subsidized in, in, in whatever way. And that people are able to uh, take risks based on uh, market assessments and borrow money accordingly, and also ensure that uh, we follow, for example, uh, the shared rules on export credits, so that when companies or, or governments indeed buy aircraft, they're doing so on a transparent pricing basis. And then we need to make sure that uh, if there's competition from non-market economies, there's a very clear understanding of what is and is not uh, a market-based approach. And these are quite technical, but the underlying principles behind them are very clear. And they're ones I believe that people in the United States and the European Union, and I hope more widely, do subscribe to. So now we can put them in writing, resolve the outstanding problems from the WTO dispute, and move on. Another, another issue and topic that I mean has occupied uh, a lot of people here, and, and uh, myself included, uh, in recent years, is the ever uh, increasing um, kind of speed and intensity of uh, security and defense cooperation in the context of the European Union. And since 2016, in particular, I mean, we've seen like quite a bit of advances uh, in this area, particularly when it comes to defense, uh, technological and industrial cooperation. And, and uh, I'm sure like you're familiar with initiatives such as the Permanent Structured Cooperation, uh, PESCO, uh, the European Defense Fund, and the um, coordinated annual review of, uh, on defense, which like to, to, to many of uh, my friends and outside Brussels often sound like rather horrible word monsters. Uh, but actually, like there's quite a bit of substance uh, behind these uh, word monsters, uh, which the EU has launched to boost its own uh, defense technological and industrial base. So how do you see these initiatives and, and, and uh, what they mean uh, for the EU's uh, defense technological and industrial base? Well, you're right, Nicholas, that the last few years have seen a real move towards action after quite a long period of talking about these things. And we strongly welcome that because it's important for Europe, uh, for US, for NATO security, that we have greater interoperability between our defense systems, that we reduce the costs of unnecessary duplication, that the fragmentation of the industry, which does not help us provide the most cost-effective defense solutions uh, can be dealt with in a rational way. And we see all these initiatives as making it easier for us to work together on our shared defense goals, because the defense sector ultimately is there to keep us all safe. And we need to minimize the unnecessary complexity and maximize the ability of countries to work together in a transparent and strategic way over time, perhaps sometimes sharing defense systems, uh, perhaps in other cases being clear what is a complementary uh, defense approach between European countries, between Europe and the United States or the United Kingdom, and 
uh, being able to purchase that in the most cost-effective way and then also maintain it and upgrade it in the most cost-effective way. And, and the more we can coordinate, uh, the easier that becomes. Indeed, and, 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 and to all the uh, listeners, it's important to remember, like when, for example, um, we're talking about the fragmentation of the European like, defense market, that whereas the United States like, has only one main battle camp, uh, tank, the Europeans like have around uh, a dozen and, and, and uh, this kind of creates inefficiencies like when it comes to uh, develop, uh, development costs, uh, procurement, and it splinters the European defense market. So indeed, like there is a lot of work that needs to be done in this area. And this was also something that was highlighted in the first full uh, coordinated annual review on defense report at the end of uh, last year. Yes. A related issue um, to, to, to this is, is, is that the United States uh, requested to participate in the EU's military mobility project in, 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 in the framework of PESCO earlier, earlier this year, like which uh, I think on both sides of the Atlantic overall, like, I mean, has been greeted with quite, quite a bit of kind of positivity and enthusiasm. And, and um, if I remember correctly, like this request is, is likely to be approved uh, by the EU's Foreign Affairs Council in, in, uh, in May when, when it meets in the format of EU defense ministers. So kind of what, in your opinion, like would kind of US participation in this project like potentially like mean for kind of broader EU-US cooperation and, and, and the transatlantic relationship, particularly in the security and defense field? I agree that it is a very positive sign. Uh, it is a recognition of the shared values and interests that we are defending together. And of course, uh, NATO is our key security alliance to do that with, and uh, that's been the world's most successful uh, defensive alliance. Bringing Europe's strategic thinking and the United States together with other uh, NATO members to ensure that we are choosing the right priorities for our defense and security effort, that we are funding them, that we know what uh, materiel that we require, how we upgrade it in the face of evolving threats and uncertainties. All that is much easier to do when you can have a dialogue that's structured in the way that um, PESCO allows the European Union to do, and then we can bring in the United States, other uh, key uh, NATO allies as well, and work much more effectively together without, as you say, being distracted by a range of secondary issues between countries, which, let's be honest, has perhaps taken up too much time in the past and distracted us from those real defense priorities, which we uh, can all see are so important today. Indeed, and, and uh, like I, I do hope that, I mean, the uh, US participation in this project like will be approved uh, in, in May. And like, I mean, it, it, it would then uh, give a further positive uh, boost uh, to the transatlantic relationship. And kind of also kind of related to this is, is, is that the EU is in the process at the moment of developing uh, a new strategic uh, compass uh, for its security and defense policy, uh, which is a document um, that is currently being prepared and, and it seeks to kind of provide further guidance and clarity on how the EU sees itself in the world and like what it wants to do like from now until about 2025 20, uh, or 2030. 
And um, this um, document is expected to be finished uh, in spring uh, 2022 under the French uh, EU Council presidency. And in addition to the things I already mentioned, it's also expected to describe the capabilities uh, that the EU needs to meet its level of ambition in the field of security and defense. So what, 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 would, what do you think of this process? Well, again, I think this has a huge amount of potential uh, to add positively to the coherence and cost effectiveness of our shared defense efforts. The world has evolved very rapidly in the last few years, and there are new challenges, new uncertainties, new potential threats. This strategic concept approach by the EU is going to make it easier to identify the wider synergies with the NATO defense planning process. And collective threat assessment and defense planning at the EU level can also help to make it easier for the European Union and NATO to be clear about who is doing what, uh, which capabilities are being developed, how they can be used for collective security. And of course, that there will be other priorities which the European Union will have, which are less directly related uh, to the defense or security area. But again, taking an overview of these together, then being able to set them in the context of our shared NATO uh, planning is really positive. And of course, we expect NATO this year to develop a new strategic concept or start that process for itself as well, since the last one is, uh, what, a decade old now. So I think this modernizing of our strategies and making sure that we're doing that process in a transparent way is going to make us more effective at defending our common values and interests. Indeed, and, and, and um, it's excellent that you already kind of brought up the uh, strategic concept that NATO is likely to begin preparing uh, uh, this year, because indeed, like the strategic compass process and then the forthcoming strategic uh, concept process, I mean, they do uh, overlap uh, to some extent, as they both kind of seek to re redefine in a way like what both NATO and the European Union like want to do in the security and defense uh, field and how they um, see themselves as security and defense actors. Uh, but do you, what kind of defense industrial implications do you think the strategic concept might have? And, and, and uh, do you think like there might be a way to create synergies between these two processes? Uh, yes, I, I do, because essentially we have a shared interest in an effective uh, common defense and deterrence and making sure that we modernize that together. So transatlantic defense industrial cooperation is something that we in Boeing have always championed. And of course, uh, you could have a lot of uh, quite intense competition in that process, and that's good too, and, and we welcome that. Equally, over time, strategic decisions about what type of heavy lift or um, new forms of uh, battlefield weapon systems, uh, how the battlefield is becoming more digital, uh, how, how we coordinate information together, all of those things have to be decided at a high level and then we can work out the best way to implement them together. Uh, and we in Boeing are also very aware that it's not simply about um, the original systems, it's about how rapidly and easily you can upgrade them and how you ensure that interoperability works. And of course, many uh, systems, many Boeing systems, but also those of other manufacturers are used across 
European countries across NATO, and that makes interoperability and, of course, areas like cybersecurity uh, easier to manage together. So uh, I think there's got to be a high level of cooperation, collaboration, which doesn't rule out space for innovation and competition, but it's within these shared goals which we are clarifying together. Excellent. Um, given, given like your experience also in, in, uh, in British government, I mean, I, I do have to kind of also kind of ask you a little like a small question about Brexit as well. And, and which is, I mean, I'd personally be very interested in hearing, I mean, how Brexit, I mean, if at all has, uh, or, or perhaps has not impacted, I mean, the, the operating environment in, in Europe for, for, for a transatlantic airspace firm such as Boeing. Well, you know, we in Boeing have worked for uh, about 80 years um, with the United Kingdom and nearly as long in, in many European countries. And we respect the democratic decisions that, that those countries make. Uh, I think it's clear in the defense and security sector that the United Kingdom's commitment to uh, NATO, as, as we've seen in their integrated defense and security review, remains absolutely central to UK policy. And uh, that gives us a clear structure for defense going forward. In the civil aviation area, naturally, uh, we are concerned to ensure that uh, air transport remains open. And of course, there are no tariffs on um, uh, civil aviation goods anyway. Uh, so far, I think it's fair to say that that process is, is working out uh, pretty well. And as issues come up, we aim to um, manage them in a transparent way in everyone's interests. And I think the good news is that no one is trying to use the separation of the United Kingdom from the European Union to foster protectionism or a you know, zero-sum game approach. So uh, regulators uh, coordinate uh, closely, and um, we in Boeing want to make sure that we respect all of the national rules in the countries that we work in while facilitating uh, cross-border uh, work and cooperation uh, because it's better for everyone. Mm, indeed, and um, kind of one of the bigger kind of mega trends I think that uh, all companies and indeed kind of countries like in the future um, well like even now need, need are experiencing is, is and having to deal with this the fight against climate change and and reducing their reliance on on fossil fuels fuels which is a key priority for the um, European Union as outlined in the uh, European Green Deal but also for the um, Biden administration in the US I mean the Biden President Biden has made this very clear and what kind of challenges and opportunities, I mean, do you think this kind of emerging green transition um, does create for um, like aerospace firms such as Boeing? And, and how, how, how to kind of, how can you like take advantage of the challenges and, and opportunities and mitigate the challenges? That's an absolutely huge issue of fundamental importance for us and really uh, all companies in, in the sector large or small, because we know this climate challenge is not going to go away. Uh, and we in Boeing want to be part of the solution 
whether that's how we find better ways to innovate, to produce more uh, efficient uh, products, um, and also uh, how we reduce our own carbon footprint. And it's very interesting on your point that it's not just in the civil sector, but it's also our defense customers mm. who want uh, systems which are more efficient, uh, which have a reduced logistics burden and therefore require less fuel, are, are greener. But also that defense ministries, when they purchase now, are asking questions about how green, how sustainable uh, these new purchases are going to be. So this is now at, at the heart of everything we do. It's not an add-on. And I just say that in Boeing now, we're, we're focusing very much over the, the decade ahead of how we can use sustainable aviation fuels in the civil, but also potentially in the defense sector uh, as an immediate and practical way of reducing our carbon footprint while looking at how longer term solutions can, can also be brought to play. So this is very much core now to everything that we do. And, and within Boeing, we've been adjusting our structures uh, to make sure that we're fully focused on this. And of course, we have the Conference of Parties, the COP26 uh, meeting in Glasgow coming up later this year to review global targets for climate change. Is, if you, could you perhaps like say something on, if you know, uh, like whether like the development of sustainable aviation fuels or renew, renewables aviation fuels is something that we might like see sometime in the not too distant future, perhaps? Uh, yes, I, I think we will. There is a challenge about increasing the scale of production and a challenge about reducing uh, the price. But those are not um, impossible. And I think with a shared commitment by airlines, by customers, civil and defense, uh, and then by innovators, we can produce a range of ways of uh, providing options for sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, to our customers and contributing immediately uh, to a reduction in uh, carbon outputs, which uh, is, of course, so important. So we really do see that as something which is deliverable. And we're looking at how building on work Boeing's been doing for some years in the sustainable aviation fuel area, uh, we can help to uh, make this a central part of aviation going forward. The last question I, I, I want to ask you is a question that I, I, I try to ask all of uh, all of my guests in this podcast, which is about the European Union's strategic autonomy and, 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 and uh, the, the ambition that was uh, outlined in, in the 2016 EU global strategy. And I mean, as you certainly like know, there have been countless uh, debates and discussions on the on, on the precise meaning of, of strategic autonomy. And, and, and uh, I sometimes feel like we spend more time in Brussels discussing the theology of strategic autonomy rather than actually kind of um, doing strategic autonomy in action. So what does strategic autonomy mean to you? <laughs> oh, well, look, I'm a, I'm a simple soul. And I think this comes down to saying that you know, autonomy is about respecting freedom of choice. And that freedom is something that we defend through NATO. Uh, and it is European choices about the priorities for security and defense. And then the strategic element of that, of course, is that it's not just for this month or this year, 
these are issues which develop over time, as we've seen, for example, in cybersecurity. And they're not susceptible to quick fixes. So for me, it's about taking that long-term view. It's about Europe coming together freely to decide what is most important for European security. And of course, that overlaps massively with what is important to the United Kingdom, to the United States and others, because we have these values uh, that, that we share. And I think we should be confident that the, the strategic autonomy approach can be a strong pillar of deeper cooperation, not just across the Atlantic, but, but more widely uh, to protect and defend those values globally. Indeed, and I would, I would almost kind of also say that partners such as the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, and, and, and also the industry, I mean, are kind of key enablers of strategic autonomy, like in the European context as well. I mean, and, and, and it's something that thought completely without them, I mean, it would certainly like not uh, be uh, realizable, realizable, I would say. So Martin, um, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I'm very happy that, um, uh, that I had this chance of discussing these issues with you. I hope uh, all of the listeners like, uh, in, in enjoyed uh, today's episode as well, and, and uh, we will return with uh, additional episodes uh, in the not too distant future. So thank you to all of you, and whoever you are, like, have a very pleasant day. Thank you very much, Nicholas. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was today's episode of Defence Dialogue. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.